Oh, well, hey, and thank you for downloading another podcast from Simon Mayer's Books of the Year. Correct. And we, we now have merch. Can we talk about the merch? Yes, let's talk about the merchandise. Yes, we've been set because obviously we, in previous podcasts, we've had sort of our, our um, logo superimposed onto our chests. Yeah. But now we actually have merch Go, it looks fabulous, by the way. Yes, yeah, so it's got the logo, which you'll see on the podcast, but it's now on a T-shirt and a sweatshirt. And this is from uh, Paul Cartwright, marketing manager at Premier Sports. Yes. And it's it's a slightly un- uncomfortable for me burgundy colour, which is a little bit Aston Villa, a little bit West Ham. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you'd want yours in white? No. No? No. I th- Well, a white T-shirt would be nice. No- yes, that's yes, true. Yes, you but would. Also a, a, kind of a darker, more royal blue. Okay, yes. I right. Would, I would suggest <laughs> But anyway, it's a very nice gift. Thank you, Paul. And, you know, we need... I feel as though we should get some of these for listeners. Do you mean as in uh, a prize? Yes. Do you think? Or do you mean get listeners to buy them? Both. Actually, both. That sounds good. (laughs) So we're going to try and work on that because I know that what everybody... If only we'd done this in time for Christmas. But then we didn't know that we had friends at Premier Sports. We thought we were still just being friends with Michelle Obama... Uh, the Economist, Yoko uh, Ono, and Yoko Ono, and Harry's Razors, and we love them all. <laughs> we do, particularly Harry's Razors. Premier Sports yeah. haven't even paid anything. No, they haven't paid. But they've just sent us some very nice uh, merchandise. So thank you very much indeed uh, to Paul Carwright and his and his chums. And if we can think of a way of promoting, you know, give, doing a competition. Yes, I'm uh, sure we can come up with a question or something. Lots of uh, response to uh, Ian Ranking being on the show. Uh, Jackie Martin. Superb interview with Ian Rankin. Oh yeah, on uh, the new Rebus novel. Deeply insightful, fascinating, and entertaining. Could listen to Ian talk all day. Brilliant interviewee. Gorgeous voice. Never mind us. You know, no, never mind all the work we put in. Well, Ian Rankin did reply to that by saying, two gifted and genuine interviewers made my job very easy. Well done, Ian. Know which side your bread's buttered on. Do you want to mention the other Ian? Who's, oh, yes, who's Ian Carter, who is our favourite golf correspondent. Uh, and he said, what can I say? Fave interviewers talk to my fave author. A belting listen. Now Christmas can't come quickly enough because the new Rebus is top of my wish list. Probably should get that mad blood thingy as well, which uh, obviously is reference to a fabulous... Fabulous book written by someone else. Mad Blood Thingy. Mad Blood Thingy. That was very much how I remembered it. Yeah. All right. Uh, Ian, thank you very much. You're almost our favourite golf yes. correspondent. I, can't, I don't know any others. No. <laughs> but you're still our favourite. Um, uh, this from Nadja, who's in Vienna. Uh, Simon and Matt, finally it happened, the Ian Rankin interview. I was beginning to think you were bluffing. I really enjoyed listening to your chat with Mr Rankin, and I loved hearing him reading aloud from his book with that great Scottish accent. That is how I will imagine and replay the dialogue in my head from now on. Speaking about dialogue in books, in your previous podcast, Lee Child talks about how this is something that can make or break a book. I agree, and I think this is one of the many factors that make the Rebus series so enjoyable, that Rankin creates a lively and authentic dialogue between the characters. Mm. Unfortunately, I haven't got a to reading Lee Child yet. Actually, I've hardly read anything other than Rebus since I caught the bug this summer. Maybe there is a support group that Matt and I could join. Quite right too, yes. Whether it's in Vienna or not, I, well, I, I don't know. But it's an interesting happy. point about dialogue because if 
if you don't believe what these characters are saying, then you're no, that's right. and it was that was a, a real insight because I've started thinking that as well now. Is that if you don't if you can't get the way people talk to each other right, then it's not working. Um, Andy Carrington emailed. I recently had the great pleasure of briefly meeting Ian Rankin at a book event in Bristol, where I asked him about a, a photo he'd posted on Twitter that shows three quotes written on post-it notes that he keeps pinned on the wall in front of him when he's writing. It was hard to make out the writing in the photo, and he kindly tweeted the quotes to me the next day. And they are, uh, the wisdom of the novel comes from having a question for everything. That's from Milan Kundera. Every book is the wreck of a perfect idea. What a great quote that is. That's Iris Murdoch. And doubt is your friend when you're writing a novel, Anthony Giardina. Uh, It's a fascinating insight into the mindset of the writer. Doubt seems like it is a constant for the author, as is the need to continually adapt ideas and compromise with oneself. I find it reassuring in a way that even the great Ian Rankin has doubts when writing. I wonder if you could ask what other thoughts, inspirations, mantras, words of wisdom, reassuring, assurances your guests keep in mind whilst they're writing. As an aside, isn't it great when you meet your heroes and they turn out to be friendly, kind and thoughtful people willing to take the time to write to and engage with readers like me? Ian Rankin was all that and more. Keep up the great work. Your podcast is fabulous. Easily in my top three favourite podcasts that I listen to, winky face emoji, Andy Carrington. (laughs) Uh, well, I'll be. In, I accept being in the top. Top three will do for me. Yeah. Just, uh, just before uh, we get to our uh, main conversation uh, with our guests, uh, one of our regular correspondents, uh, who's called Rachel, just says at the end of her latest missive, "I've just left the Richard and Judy podcast a two-star review, and I've recommended others check out <laughs> Books of the Year." <laughs> As theirs is deeply unsatisfying. Uh, I mean, obviously, we don't encourage people to go and start only leaving one star and two star reviews Elsewhere. on other podcasts. We do, however, strongly encourage you to leave five star reviews for us. Thanks very much. And here come two more five star guests. Okay, so here we go with Cressida Cal talking Wizards of Once, Twice Magic, and the Golden Atlas with Edward Brooke Hitching. Hello, Edward. How are you? Hi, um, thanks very much for having me on. It's, it's very nice to welcome you to our very small. <laughs> uh, but rather beautifully appointed studio. And Cresta Cal, very nice to have you here. How are you? Very well, thank you. And uh, we have two books to discuss, Wizards of Once, Twice Magic, and also uh, The Golden Atlas. And it goes to Matt to describe both. Do them yes. in whichever order you fancy. Right, well, I'm going to start with Wizards of Once. So the dominant colour here is green. This is uh, very much going to be attracting your eyes when you're going into bookshops. And uh, it's beautifully uh, illustrated uh, with our two main protagonists uh, taking up the uh, the front uh, of the or lower portion of the book with the Wizards of Once in, in sort of fiery writing. Number one best-selling author, Cresta Cowell, picked out in silver and the title Twice Magic at the bottom. And it's sort of unfair to compare it with the Golden Atlas, but anyway, go ahead. Yes, goodness <laughs> me. So, well, the dominant colour here is gold, as you would expect with Golden Atlas, but wow, what a... we've Well, basically, we've got a, a globe dominating that uh, that that front page uh, with some great illustrations around it that's obviously been taken from a previous atlas, but uh, Edward Brooke Hitching, the Golden Atlas, as I say, in big, bold gold, the greatest explorations, quests, and discoveries on maps. Okay, which kind of describes exactly uh, what it's doing. And can I just have a conversation about maps then, just at the very beginning? Because, Cressida, your book starts with a map, Mm -hmm. um, and we see the world at which we're going to be spending the next few hundred pages. And obviously, Golden Atlas has got 
loads of maps, but from a from a, an author's point of view, Cresta, what it, what's the relevance of the map? How important is the map for you? Uh, the map is a really important starting point for me because um, I, 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 a map makes um, an imaginary place feel like a real place. As soon as you've drawn the map, you know how long it takes to get from Encanzo's fort to you know somewhere else on on the map, mm. and so it, it it feels very real to the child reader as soon as, as soon as you're doing because human beings are so clever about time and space and where they are, and if if the fantasy is consistent um, with the map, it, it it makes it feel very real. I read something very interesting about um. You know that film, The Shining. Um, Stanley Kubrick, who's a bit of a um, genius, he drew a map of that spooky old hotel, and somehow that makes the place work as a real space. So as soon as the little kid goes through the space on his little cart, it makes the film even more scary. Because so I think a, a map is incredibly important in give, as a story starter, and also to make the lie feel real, as it were. Um, so mm. I always start with a map, and I loved books with maps at the front. Yeah. I imagine you must have done, Edward, given that you've spent so much time looking at maps. Do you like a story that starts with a map? I, I've i come almost entirely from it, uh, from a sort of historical point of view. My dad was a rare book dealer and, I, mm. and he worked from home. His shop was at home. So I just grew up with books and maps on the wall. Um, but it's, I mean, I did, the, the book I wrote before this was about lies um, that were made real by putting them on maps um, called <laughs> yeah. Phantom Atlas. And it's that exact same idea. Um, but the point or well, the point of the golden atlas was trying to, to say that look at maps in a different way a historical map don't see them as these sort of flat quiet things hanging on the wall but look at think of every little detail on them as what it was to the person who discovered it and suddenly you realize that the map is just this tapestry of hundreds thousands of different adventures and mm-hmm. and uh, just capturing these stages of of progress of exploration so yeah. I mean, interesting there's a there's a map uh, there's a book that's just out also which i've written uh, contributed a chapter to for called the writer's map um which is about exactly what you're talking about um, um maps and their relationship to to you know how, how writers you know and there's a chapter by me and there's a chapter by philip pullman and then there's a talk talking about peter pan you know and uh, um there's all the maps in tolkien it's a similar it's, it's fascinating yeah. how <clears throat> maps are so inspiring to writers isn't it Absolutely. The other thing that you have in common, and I'm latching on here to a very small thing, the <laughs> fir- one of one of the maps I like the most in in your book is one of the earliest maps of Australia, maybe the earliest map of Australia, which I think mm-hmm. is labelled New Guinea. Anyway, and it's got dragons in it. So uh, anyway, because of <gasps> here course, be as, dragons. We, as we all know, you know, Australia is full of dragons and lions and <laughs> minotaurs. And, <laughs> yeah, although here be dragons has never been put on a map. There's, oh, only, there's only one existing example of it on a very old globe. Um, but yeah, that map, the first sort of printed uh, mention of, well, uh, outlining of Australia was entirely by accident when the Dutch were searching for the coast of New Guinea. They found um, part of Australia, but they didn't realise they had. Um, and so it was all it was all kept very secret for, for a long time in their, in their um, proprietary atlas called the Sea Torch, which no one else was allowed to find because obviously it was their trade routes. Yeah, yeah, guard, yeah. Secretly. So Cressida, yeah. in the, uh, so Wizards of Once, Twice Magic, so tell us where we are and get us up to speed so that we know exactly where we are. We haven't got the map for the podcast, so just fill us in all the details for this, uh, for this world. Well, this is a world split in two. So um, the wizards and the warriors are fighting each other. This is it, 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 the world is covered in wild woods. It's end of the Bronze Age, beginning of the Iron Age, and so the, the, um, the British Isles are covered in in, in wild woods. And a Tsar 
and wish have been brought up from different tribes that have been taught to hate each other like poison. So it's a sort of preteen Romeo and Juliet mm. kind of set up. Um, and Tsar is a wizard boy who has no magic and he will do anything to get it. And Wish is a warrior girl who has a secret, who has a, a secret magical power. And so it's about what happens when these two tra- children meet and can they see things from each other's point of view. And, the, and, and, the, and the one thing we should say right, right at the very beginning is, and anyone's familiar with, with your work, is that you write and you illustrate. And I mm-hmm. don't know anyone else who... Uh, combines these things better than you do, and oh, you're because we, we, <laughs> well, we deal with lots of books that 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 are, that are illustrated. You know, where there's yeah. a writer and there's not. These are very different skills usually, yeah. but with your books, they're a design, it's a design feast. You know, and oh. everything is the text and the and the pictures are kind of one. So, so my last question for Matt is just on the process when when you when you're writing about wish and czar do you write the words do you come up with the with the pictures first do you do them all at the same time Matt? i draw the map first and okay. then draw the map first, and and then I, I do draw the characters and some of the, if i have a new setting i would draw a setting and um, to get a, a feeling for the setting and a, and a feeling for the world. It is a really complicated process, um, but particularly the end bit, because you're, you're absolutely right. It has to work together like a 350-page a pitch book, really. So we have to fit the text. Luckily, I'm the writer, so I can be absolutely vicious with the, te- with the text. So I'm sitting there with a designer and it doesn't fit my, the design. I say, OK, lot that bit. <laughs> you know, and, and if I wasn't the writer, you'd have to ring up the writer. and you know. But, but we're sitting there together and we can do it absolutely on the on the spot um it's it's so integral to getting children reading because my my books are actually quite um challenging i mean they're quite, the, the the language isn't dumbed down at all um but and the ideas are quite complicated you know i, I don't i talk about heroism politics what makes a great leader you know all of these ideas are washing around in a very plot driven kind of um but but what makes it accessible for children is is the speediness of the narrative, but also the visu- visualness of it. So I get loads of dyslexic readers, despite the language, um, because um, they have a payoff. You know, a book is so difficult to decode for a child, whereas film and telly are just magically beamed in. But if you have the payoff of the illustrations, you know, helping you through the text, as it were, it, it enables children to, to read way beyond, you know, their expected reading. I'll tell you what I I took from your book, and it may well be that it's just me, um, because (laughs) of my own own sort of touchstones. But I got a real gothic sensibility coming through. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's from, from the illustrations, but also from the writing. And it really, really charmed me because I was a bit of a goth when I was when I was growing up. And um, there was a um, there was a Pixar movie out uh, a few years back called Inside Out, which, which the, the basic message of that was it's okay to be sad, it's okay to be down. Yeah. And the attraction of goths when I was growing up was it's okay to be a bit weird, it's okay to be different, <laughs> and that was something I w- I took from your book was that um, that you had characters who were. A little bit weird, who were different, yeah. and that other members of society were, were perhaps finding perplexing, if not threatening. Mm. But the message I was getting from your book was that that's okay. Yeah, and I, I wondered whether that was was that just me taking that, for, or was that a deliberate thing from you? 
very deliberate and 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 it, and it really resonates for children i mean that's the thing that i carry on from how to train your dragon and i get so many messages from children who are being bullied or who are finding it hard to to, to fit in to say how much that i mean that's number one concern of children is being bullied um so i i, I get a lot of messages from children saying that that you know that's something that they're worried about and that's and certainly that's something i worried about as a child i mean i worried about i was different i was a bit different i was a bit um, and I think that's a very common worry of children. Is the goth and thing there at all, or is that just my imagination? <laughs> I can't it's, imagine Chris as a goth. No, I can't see you at the Sister Mercy gig somehow, no. <laughs> I was never a goth. I'm so sorry. I was not a goth, but maybe I was a goth. Although some of the characters, some of the characters that you've written about, like Snotface, Snotlout, Snotlout, and Gobber the Belch and Dog's Breath the Durbrain. Oh yeah, yeah. Seen them live? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's that's so interesting. You should say that. I've never had that. I think I think I should take you to a sister of mercy gig, and you'd you'd fit in straight away. Great. Yeah, no, the the, the um, yeah, but the definitely the thing of 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 the the person who's a bit different, having something interesting to offer, is something that runs through. Um, uh, but yes, it's a it's a real it's a real juggling act to get everything in there. So so to be to be moving. Um, uh, to 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 um, tell the plot, um, to be funny, um, but also to be wise all at the same time. And I'm trying to kind of make it a bit like a piece of music. And the pacing of it is is complicated. It's 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 difficult getting it. Can getting I? Ask, it all, but it's can I can I ask you to tell us a little bit about? It's just one. Other, I mean, there's loads of different characters that I that I could ask you about. Mm-hmm. But could you tell us a little bit about Zars Giant Crusher? Yeah. Um, uh, the 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 giant crusher is definitely my father. Um, I didn't. I often don't mean to write write people in. Um, you know, you don't set out. Okay, I'm going to write about my father, or um, but um, that often ends up happening. And I drew the picture of the giant, and oh my god, it's my father. Um, the giant is my father. I should say um, the, the the giant in this giant is is not a. Kind of classic giant. He's a, he's a thinking giant. He's, he's a, a kind of he's wise. A he's a walking giant. He's a walking giant. He walks through the forests, and he's a philosopher giant. And he walks through um, the wild woods, thinking great thoughts. It's a it's a complicating because you know my father wasn't a philosopher. Um, my brother is by coincidence, um, I'm sure. Um, but um, my brother is a philosophy professor. Um, but um, but the giant is the picture of the giant. You draw it, and you say, "Oh my God, it is my father." Um, and and running through the books is very much there's no the hidden life of trees is something that I was very interested in that was a book that we were talking about earlier is because my father was a great environmentalist he was he was chairman of um, Kew Gardens and he was chairman of the RSPB and so every walk with him you know he knew what that bird was he knew what those trees are and so I read a lot of books like Robert McFarlane's books about wilderness and nature and I want to teach children about nature get them concerned about nature because you know we are in trouble <laughs> as 
as a world, we are in trouble. Children are losing connection with nature. They're losing connection with um, how much, how reliant we are on nature. So that's an important, just because you're written, writing little fantasy books about wizards or dragons doesn't mean you can't be addressing some of the great issues of the day. And that is one of the biggest challenges facing facing us all, is 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 wilderness and our relationship to, to it and nature and how we're just taking it all for granted. So yeah, the giant is my father and he's, that's, those are his concerns and he knew what that tree was. He knew what it meant, you know. There is another Every character. Every walk with him was an adventure. Definitely. There's another character I want to ask you about. And, it, and again, this was a thought that struck me as I was reading it, is how essential it is to have a good baddie. You need a really good baddie. And I <laughs> want to talk to you about um, the, the witch smeller. Which is, by the way, a great, that's a great witch smeller straight away. You're like, Another Whoa. rock band there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. so obvious you've got gothic sensibilities and have no idea, Cressida. But anyway, the witch smeller, which which, uh, which straight away, when, when I was reading, the, the, the one the thing that I thought of straight away was obviously the child catcher. Straight away you think, oh, here we go. Oh. That, I don't know whether that was in your mind at all, but certainly... Well, can you see, I don't consciously think these no, things. No, no, but yeah. People say, mm, yeah. So when you, when you come up with the witch smeller, was that... Was that enormous fun? I often oh, find with authors yes. that when you're writing oh, the baddie... I yeah. love writing yeah. the baddie. Like Alvin the Treacherous, who is the baddie in the How to Train Your Dragon. Oh, they're so enjoyable to write. It's quite interesting, this book, because you have... Because also the mother, Sycorax, is... Sycorax is, is, is the witch in um, The uh, Tempest. Um, she's the witch in the Tempest, so it's another name for it. So, so I'm playing a lot of games. You know, the mother and the father, are they good or are they bad? Is the mother good or is it, you know, do you think that Sycorax is is good or bad as a matter of interest? Well, I, I just because, I, I don't know, I thought she was good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I just put these things in. Whereas yeah. the witch smeller is very enjoyable <laughs> because you yeah. can just write him. There's no because straight away as soon as, as soon as he arrives, the name like, is yeah the, a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> yeah, so so I love playing games with that. Yeah, and and he's just purely enjoyable to write. The king witch is that I mean he looks positively sweet though compared to the king witch who really is. I mean he's really bad. Didn't you think? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Witchmeller witch is a sweetheart compared <laughs> to the King Witch. The books yeah. we're looking at uh, on Books of the Year this week uh, Wizards of Once, Twice Magic, Crested Cow, and The Golden Atlas by Edward Brooke Hitching. And uh, we'll do more in just a second. Crested Cowl is here. Uh, Edward Brooke Hitching uh, is here. The Golden Atlas uh, and Wizards of Once, Twice Magic uh, are our books. Uh, Edward, when you were, what would you say is the target audience, Cressida, by the way, for you, 10, 11, 12? It's so difficult to say because the reading level of kids varies so much in this country. Mm. So they're being read independently by kids as young as six, but then they're also being read by um, year eight, year nine. So how do I, that's fascinating. I love that challenge. You have to write, write for sort of such a wide age group. These are the books, Edward, that, I think, as you, you were referring to in an earlier conversation, that, you know, it, wouldn't it have been great to have had these when you were eight and nine? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Disappear into this world. Yeah, um, and what you were talking about, about the sort of the outsider child imagining that, yeah. that's what I always thought was clever about how your characters were designed, because if you are usually the kid who reads, I don't know if it's a stereotype, but for me, I was usually up a tree away from yeah. from uh, doing sort of uh, whatever the popular things were. And that's what I always thought was clever about something like 
like the character design of like Harry Potter, mm-hmm. who was a normal, quite shy, kept away. But when he went into this new world, everyone said, oh, we know who that is. And he's got more abilities than even he knows. And if you're a kid reading that and reading yeah. about your extraordinary character, it's so exciting. You immediately associate yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would have been the, great. I mean, the extraordinary characters in, in your book, Edward, some of them we know because we've read about them. Um, yeah. Captain James Cook, for example. You know, people like Walter Raleigh, people like that. And yet you, you are introducing us to a... a a whole different way of looking at maps and you say right at the very beginning that these maps are alive with stories that's what they are they're a different they're just different ways of telling stories can you just can you illustrate your point by mentioning a story maybe that we don't know that you came across and which has become part of your golden atlas um yeah i think uh, one of my favorite um characters from the history of exploration has a name that i'm always astounded uh, we don't know, it's not recognised everywhere, and it's William Dampier. I don't know if you've ever come across him. No. So late um, 17th century, he was the first man to circumnavigate the globe three times, the first Englishman to step foot on Australia, um, the first natural historian. Uh, he's cited in the Oxford English Dictionary more than a thousand times for introducing these words into the new language like cashew, barbecue, chopsticks, soy sauce, from his explorations. But the fascinating thing about him, and it's why the, that particular chapter is, has the title of The Educated Pirate, is because as literate as he was, which was very unusual, for, he was also a pirate. He was also seizing ships and, um, oh and living the high life on the high seas. I mean, isn't that, there's, a, there's a villain like that in Flashman, isn't there, who's a, who's a, who's a pirate who quotes Latin all oh, the time. Well, they, so that's probably a direct <laughs> the, influence. Yes, it's probably um, from him. Exactly. Well, and so Dampier's books are some of the most valuable in... Um, rare book collecting in terms of exploration and travel. Um, and yet he's sort of not very well known. So in the, in the book, I've tried to provide maps and illustrations that, in just as Cressida, you were saying about how, you know, a map can really sort of immediately make the world uh, real in the yeah. mind. It's the same with, with nonfiction as well. The moment you see these those particular lines on the map yeah. and you can tell exactly what part of history you are because of, um, if it's around this time, you know, Australia the east coast was until captain cook reached it uh on maps it was just a blank it disappeared it was became part of the unknown world so we only had half of australia uh, the, on these maps and i and i, and I love the, the the transition through your book as we go uh, because to start with it's sort of like the, it, they're very romantic pictures you know it's okay illustrators let's do some dragons and let's do some lions and whatever it is mer people and yeah. all that kind of stuff because we don't really know what's going on over there. <laughs> yeah. and then gradually as you go through the centuries science and maths takes over and it, it's almost it's almost like a different art form you know the one absolutely. one stage it, it's it's fiction and then it becomes non-fiction absolutely um, um that's that's great that that you could get that from that book so easily because that's what i was always worried about is there's so much history to cover that that sort of basic progression might get lost but it is fascinating looking at how maps develop as we develop and how a medieval mapamundis like the Her- one in the hereford cathedral were more for um, pilgrims who couldn't read um, and they were curiosity cabinets displaying God's wonders. You know, they were visual artefacts um, with no particular focus on geography or, or practical use. Um, and then, of course, we started 
using them to find our way around. We rediscovered Ptolemy's science, and so coordinates started being attributed to maps, and, and suddenly spatial reasoning became a thing. And so belief features like um, the Garden of Eden, which is so prominent on medieval maps, um, the map of Mundia oriented to the east with the Garden of Eden at the top as, as our guiding light. Mm -hmm. uh, suddenly there's no room for features like that, so they get pushed to the side. And then there's that wonderful thing of how we start to sort of rationalize but still allow the existence. So, of course, the Garden of Eden wouldn't technically be on a map because it was <laughs> it was destroyed in the Great Flood. So of course, we <laughs> can't find it. Logical. And then they just gradually disappear. And the world, as you go through the book, the lines um, increase and we start to see how the world comes into shape. What What is astonishing there is how quickly the maps that you see through the book start to resemble the maps that we know now. It's sort of, by the time we get to the sort of 16th century almost, those those maps would be recognisable to, to you and I if we, if we were looking uh, at globes now. The, the thing I want to talk to you about uh, most and, and, and what struck me as I was reading it was the motivations of explorers. Now, yeah. the, the obvious motivations are those like, um, bluntly, money, financial and faith as well, that, that people wanting to spread their faith ar yeah. around the world. But I, I want to talk to you about the, the, the lesser-known ones, and, and particularly what were the motivations of the very, very early explorers who weren't, who didn't know that, uh, weren't searching for El Dorado, weren't searching for, or weren't wanting to yeah. spread their faith around the world, because I think that's really interesting. Well, um, the first part of the book is ancient explorers, because again, I felt like you don't, read enough about um, explorers, like the first ever named explorer in history um, was an Egyptian called Harkouf. And so we talk about his motivations. Um, the reason we know about Harkouf is because he engraved his autobiography on his tomb, which has survived. Um, and so he proudly lays out letters that he received from his um, boy pharaoh, Pepi II, who was eight years old, dispatching him to this land of Yam, that we're not sure where it is, but maybe sort of southern Sudan. And so um, Harkouf relays uh, his, his missions, um, which were almost entirely to bring glory on himself and his family and his pharaoh. And there's one uh, amazing letter that he wrote um, to excite his pharaoh to announce his return from the land of Yam, where he, sa he tells him that he's um, bringing home the gift of a dancing dwarf of the god from the land of the spirits. And so he gets a letter back from Pepe, who's incredibly, this little boy, incredibly excited. And he says, come northward to the court immediately. Thou shalt bring this dwarf with thee. Take care, lest he fall into the water. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's really interesting to, yeah, to go back, study these uh, motivations. And, and like you say, they do vary because there's a Persian explorer um, called Satasbes who was <laughs> given the choice of being executed or a worse punishment, which was to try and sail around Africa. So he chose that. Um, and he failed because he met with currents that obviously they didn't understand and his ship was stalled. So he returned home hoping that he thought, it's quite impressive enough that I've traced the east coast of Africa, but he was impaled anyway. <laughs> impaled anyway. Yeah. Uh, it's also the myths as well, though. I, I had no idea that Walter Raleigh... One of the reasons he set out was because of El Dorado. He was wanting to find El Dorado. Yeah, I think in in school, if we when we are taught it, it's we're told it's it's his participation in the main plot, you know, against uh, James I, and off with his head in Old Palace Yard. 
But um, the reason why the myth was so serious and, and obviously the reasons why he was so desperate to find it are obviously lost gold city based entirely on a rumor of El Dorado literally translates as the gilded one. And it was just a story that would, by that time had become extinct. But it was a story that came from somewhere. It did. In it the came sense from the, that there was great Yeah, it came from the Whisker tribe and it was mm. about their chief who would dust himself in gold and wash himself off in the lake. So they mm-hmm. thought, if this tribe has so much gold that they can just mm. wash it off every day. Mm. So they searched for lake. Mm. They thought it was Lake Parame, but that was also mm. mythical, although it's mapped. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was—he then was sort of returned to England, uh, was in jail for a little bit, but the, the crown needed money. So they thought, what better way than to find a golden city? So he was, he was released, blinking into the daylight, and sent back to find it uh, on the one condition to not endanger the peace treaty with the Spanish. But uh, unfortunately, his party sailed up the Orinoco and in their zeal attacked a Spanish outpost. And because of that, Spanish <sighs> demanded his head as punishment. I just want to um, mention what, one aspect which is, which is in this book, which uh, you, you mentioned people, names that we would, won't know. Yeah. So I'd like to add to that uh, Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Maria Sibylla Marion, because you've got a section on the most sort of influential women in this world, yeah. and but it, and if you'd asked me before I started the book, can you name a single woman explorer or when we got involved, I wouldn't have wouldn't have been able to mention anybody. So you're, yeah. there's a start of a correction going on here. I mean, I'm hopefully, and obviously it's not enough, um, but it's to, up to a certain point, it's just impossible to find. Um, uh, uh, sort of significant female explorers because they simply weren't allowed to go anywhere. You weren't allowed the on ships. The Vikings, Viking women went all over the place. You just don't have the records. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the, well, quite. You know, the, yeah. the, um, the, the sort of recent, recent um, archaeological yeah. but also explorations to have shown that, you know, Viking women would, would you know, were, were exploring out there with their husbands and were, that was a start. A start anyway. Yeah, you know, no, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, and I've, I had to sort of uh, think of it from a sort of cartographical point of view mm. as well, like, like you say, records, but also... Um, exploring geographically, mm-hmm. um, and you know this European ban or prohibition on mm-hmm. on just female uh, presence on a ship. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> another name that you might not have heard of is is the first woman to circumnavigate the globe. Which no, I was, who's so, that? So she was um, a, a lady called Jeanne Barre, um, but she did it um, incredibly bravely, dressed as a man. Um, so it was in 1767, which you can imagine being the only woman, even in disguise, on a ship of men. On and a, nobody guessed. Well, just like Bob in Blackadder. <laughs> yeah, ex- well, exactly. So she sneaks aboard as, as uh, with her partner, who was a botanist, to go on the first French circumnavigation, scientific circumnavigation. Um, but her identity was discovered. They were left at Mauritius. Uh, and then eventually um, her partner, Commerson, died and she eventually made it back to Paris. But in, in arriving back in Paris, she t- completed the first circumnavigation by a woman. I do, I do want to ask you just briefly about um, Francis Drake. And you've sort of already touched on the sort of piracy that was going on, this sort of licensed piracy that certainly uh, British explorers were doing. It, it struck me as I was reading, though, that um, that Drake, when he was sort of plundering these Spanish galleons and and going to ports and and, and, and stealing everything, the, the most important thing that he was picking up was maps. 
it was yeah. it wasn't always gold. It was maps. That's that's where the real value lies. Absolutely, and that's actually a common common thread in in particular accounts of ship seizing, um, and it's definitely true of Francis Drake because when he popped out into the Pacific, having navigated the, the Strait of Magellan, the Spanish didn't even um, really carried guns on their ships because they just weren't used to anyone else. They couldn't imagine anyone else being there, um, and so you can imagine from an English point of view, there's this whole new world of data to collect. Um, but one of my favorite stories is from uh, Sir Walter Raleigh doing the same thing when he captures a Spanish uh, captain, Pedro Sarmiento, and interrogates him over his maps, this new, and he points to one particular island that looks quite of tactical use um, near the strait and says, what is this? It's labeled the painter's wife's island. And apparently Sarmiento laughs and just says, ah, well, um, that is because uh, when it was drawn on the map, the painter's wife was beside him and said, you know, can you put in a little island for me? <laughs> and, and Sarmiento says, and I fear there are many such uh, painter's wife's islands on, on these maps. Uh, Edward Brooke Hitching's book is The Golden Atlas. Cressida Cowell's book is Wizards of Once, Twice Magic. Will there be thrice magic? I imagine... There is, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I'm working on it right now. Cressida and Edward, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So thanks to Cressida and thanks to Edward, uh, two most engaging guests. You just get the feeling. Cressida could obviously fill hours of uh, your time with uh, conversations about, I mean, just to do the illustrations that she does in the writing mm. is, is is extraordinary. And Edward is just obviously a mine of information. Quite right, yes. And you can hear Cressida and Edward very shortly when we do the Q&A. That'll be with you in a couple of days. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.